everybody, welcome to the third instalment of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about recent goings-on in the world of herpetology. My name's Tom Major, I'm one of your hosts, the other host is Ben Marshall, and today, Ben, we're going to be discussing boas. Yeah, we are, we're going for a bit of a boa-heavy episode. We have a trio of papers about a little bit about boa behaviour, a little bit about boa hunting, well, killing things, as grim as it is. And uh, a little bit of landscape genetics to finish things up. <laughs> nice bit of light-hearted landscape genetics. Oh, yeah. It's, it's what you need on a late weekend or something, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So, um, yeah, I mean, should we, should we get into the first paper? Well, I was going to suggest, before we dig into any of the papers, we do the rather daunting task of talking about boa taxonomy, just so everybody's on the same page. We've made this episode a sort of boa special, yeah. But really, it should be called a Boyd special, right? Because some of the some of the ones we're going to be talking about aren't boas, the genus, but they are Boyds, the family. Ah, but they all have the common name of something boa. Yes, which is weird in itself. Well, exactly. There's not a fantastic amount of uh, consistency there. No. Okay, so. Um... So you've got some sort of uh, taxonomical ground rules for us, have you? Well, I was just thought we'd, we'd set out and make sure we're quite happy with just say we're going by Pyron, Reynolds and Burbrink's 2014 paper, um, a taxonomic revision of boas uh, published in Zootaxa, and just take that as our gold standard for now and just say everything that we're dealing with today is as far as I know, unless you're bringing in some species I don't know. <laughs> Everything in the main papers today belongs to Boidae, the family, as well as Buidae, which is the, the super family. Gotcha. So now we can <laughs> say Boid, and we know that we're talking about just the stuff we're talking about today. Excellent. Cool. Okay, yeah. I think that's some valuable housekeeping. So that's good. Well, yeah, there's a lot of confusion with boas and all over the world, and they have been revised more times than Probably has been good for them. <laughs> okay, cool. So, uh, Pyronetal is the paper to go to if you want to understand our grasp of taxonomy. It's one of them. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's the one, but it, it is certainly the most convenient for today because we can just say Boyd's and not be jumping between families. Cool. So, on the subject of Boyd's and Boas. And Boas. Yeah. Both. Should we get started on the first paper that we've yeah, uh, elected yeah. to read? A nice grim start. Yeah. The first paper is by Bobak, McCann, Wood, McNeil, Blankenship and Zwema. Uh, this one was published in 2015 and it's entitled Snake Constriction Rapidly Induces Circulatory Arrest in Rats. It's from the Journal of Experimental Biology, which uh, happens to be an open access journal, which is mighty handy. You mean the best type of journal? Yeah. Yes. Or, as the case may be, as the episode wears on, some cases, not the best type of channel. Little spoiler alert. Oh. Ben doesn't know what I'm talking about. No one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm mysterious. I'm feeling mysterious. <laughs> this paper, though, study species with boa constrictor. Classic. One of the only Latin names I'm fully confident in pronouncing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's always... There's a few examples. There's probably loads of examples, like, where the... Scientific name is the same as a common name. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this, and I could not come up with any off the top of my head. Gorilla, gorilla, is one. Rattus, rattus, almost one. Yeah, I can't think of any more. No, that's a 
That's that's pretty good. That's got, better, better than what I did. Got, I got two. <laughs> got two in the old holster. But yeah, boa constrictor is probably the most famous snake in the world. Would you agree? Oh, in terms of actually a species, yes. Yeah. I think stuff, you know, you show someone a cobra, they're going to know it's a cobra, but knowing a species of a cobra is going to be tougher. Boa constrictor is your default boa. Yeah, everyone knows the boa constrictor. I mean, it describes what it does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easy to remember. Yeah, and it strikes fear into the hearts of man <laughs> as well. Especially always... if that man is shaped like a rat. <laughs> so these are big snakes, aren't they? They get to three metres, maybe even four metres long at a real push. Um they're usually smaller, and obviously there's island ones which are much smaller, etc. They have a really wide distribution. South and Central America, pretty widespread snake. Um, there is some debate about the splitting of boa constrictor, boa imperata. Generally speaking, it seems like the decision's been made and they're separate species, but then... Um, there's always room for, for changes yeah. in, in taxonomy. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense geographically, having a big old mountain range slap bang you know, slicing a species in two, that... Yeah, the Andes it, Mountains... It does make sense that there would be two separate species. Yeah, and it does seem some of Reynolds's other work suggests that that is the case. But we don't need to get into that for the purposes of this. The The best paper to read if you're interested in the Boa Imperator or Boa Constrictor Taxonomical Debate is Toward a Tree of Life for the Burrs and Pythons, Multilocus Species Level Phylogeny with Unprecedented Taxon Sampling. And that's by Reynolds et al., from uh, molecular phylogenetics and evolution in 2014 but we don't need to get too bogged down in it it's basically enough to say that it's very confusing the taxonomy yes and i think the point of the paper we're we're discussing is the species won't make that much of a difference it's quite in general uh how do constrictors constrict yeah and they're all killers so it doesn't really matter what species they are they're gonna kill yeah but yeah to describe what a boa looks like what a boa constrictor looks like very variable coloration if you need a description if you do need yeah i mean to be honest it's a kind of like the bearded dragon thing everyone knows what one is don't they i'd hope so if you've gotten this far yeah if you've gotten this far you're gonna know but they are sort of gray to brown with darker saddles um and their tails quite often are a nice shade of red burgundy sometimes other times they're just a different shade of brown with some some of them have a bit of cream in there quite striking looking snakes does anybody know why they have uh, sort of reddish burgundy tails? That seems to be something that pops up in a few species of snake. Well, in a lot of vipers and things, it's because they do something called caudal luring, mm. which is where they they move the tail in a kind of um, undulating worm-like fashion to try and attract lizards or small mammals, or even like frogs and salamanders and stuff. Birds? Birds, potentially, yeah. There's the Iranian one, Pseudocerastes urachnoides, which is a really cool little viper. They're, the common name is spider-tailed horn viper. That's pretty spot on. Mate, they're banging. Like, there's YouTube videos. Everyone should look this up. Iranian spider-tailed viper tricks bird is the YouTube video. And it just waggles its little tail around. It literally looks like there's a spider running around on the rocks. Stupid, unsuspecting bird. Not even a stupid bird. Give the bird some credit. It was like, <laughs> yo, there's a spider. I'm going to eat that. Flies down. Game over. Bang. Job done. Yeah. The the viper messes them up, and it's a really cool video. Unbelievable that they have this appendage. It yeah. is quite a hideous thing, the way, <laughs> the way it moves around. But yeah, so it's called caudal luring. Lots of viper species do it. Baby green tree pythons do it. Um, baby ones only. There's no evidence of adults doing it, but the babies wiggle their tail around. That was in a Murphy et al. paper in 1978, which we'll put in the 
in the list. Well, everything will be in the list. If we mention it, it'll be in the list, yeah. so you don't have to worry about that. Okay, and um, yeah, Death Adders do it. There's a Shizara Tal paper, Death Adders do it. It's quite a common behaviour, actually. Mm. And it, it sounds common enough to have its own episode dedicated to it. it uh, yeah, you know what? It would actually make a really cool episode. And there is a record of Boa Constrictors doing it as babies, which is what led me to this. It's it's actually in the, a bulletin of the Maryland Herpetological Society in 1980, and that's by Radcliffe and Shazar, and it's about boa constrictors using their tail as a lure, but it's impossible to find a copy of. Um, I actually managed to piece together reading it using Google Books, and just like getting <laughs> tiny... So that you, sometimes you get the nice bit in between the yeah. pages. Uh, the, uh, I was actually trying yeah. to read it for something else that I'm doing, and yeah, it was a real slog to some, get. Some of those bulletins have been buried deep yes it's a real shame because there's there's still good useful stuff in a lot of them you just you can't get so lucky sometimes yeah 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 that's why they have the cool tail it would seem it might perform other functions it might have thermoregulatory function who knows yeah but regardless it looks cool and it's it does a, look cool <laughs> yeah. that. very easy way to tell that that's what you're looking at but anyway on to this paper so um, the general idea behind the writing of this paper was that snakes might actually not kill their prey by suffocation, which is... What, mm. I mean, I've got loads of textbooks here from when I was a kid. Every single one of them, it says snakes kill their prey, constrictors at least, kill their prey by suffocation. Yes, that's what's interesting with this paper, is it digs into exactly what's killing the prey, as opposed to what you just assume is killing the prey. Yeah. And it's not even a, a new idea that it's not suffocation. I think initial mentions of this were back in uh, the early 20th century. It's, it's, although it's only just been investigated as thoroughly as it needed to be. Yeah, and even recently, um, Hardy, in 1994, wrote an article in Herpetological Review. It was called, uh, Reevaluation of Suffocation is the Cause of Death During Constriction by Snakes. And he put forward some cool ideas. Uh, he postulated that when snakes coil around the chest three things happen and actually it brings around cardiac arrest rather than suffocation he was saying these were just ideas that he had he didn't actually yeah. ever test it but he postulated that pressure on the fluids that surround the lungs would cut the blood flow to the right and left chambers of the heart obviously stopping oxygenated blood from being provided yes. to the body so although it's still oxygen being denied to the body it's a different kind and it's not lack of breathing which would be suffocation he also he also thought that um, the actual compression on the heart itself would stop the heart pumping properly. The heart wouldn't fill when yeah. it's supposed to as it relaxes, which is called diastole. So that wouldn't happen properly. And he also thought that f for a third, the trifecta of death... Just because you're not dead enough already. <laughs> yeah. The fibres of the heart would be unable to lengthen because of the compression. Um, which would leave mm, the ventricles okay. stuck in a contracted position. So basically the heart would just be constantly exerting itself when it shouldn't be, which is pretty grisly. That sounds pretty unpleasant. Yeah. yeah. But also incredibly well thought out. And that was 20-something years ago before anyone actually empirically tested it, mm. which is kind of interesting. Like There must be so many unearthed genius ideas out there that people have just yet to study. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Funding and time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a willingness to put a live snake in with a rat and watch it <laughs> get eaten. <laughs> well, not just live, but try and measure. How on earth do you measure what the heart is doing inside a creature being consumed by a boa? Well, I can tell you, actually. <laughs> um, I was hoping you would. Uh, well, I'm glad you asked. 
the way they measure it is actually an ECG, which is the same as what they use for a human, which is an electrocardiogram. See, when I was reading the paper, ECG came up. I was like, oh, I recognise that. That's an acronym I, I recognise. And there was another one that came up that wasn't even explained called QRS. What on Mate, earth is me, QRS? It took me ages to Look, work out QRS. Yeah, because it's just, you know, assumed you know what it is. I mean, it's really easy to explain. In a hospital, you have those machines that go beep, bop, beep, bop with yeah. your heartbeat. It's one of those. <laughs> it literally is. And it's just the, the QRS is the distance between the normal peaks and troughs of a Yes, it measures different graph. aspects of the, the heartbeat graph. Yeah. yeah. But like, they don't actually define it no. in the paper. That's one of my small bugbears as well. I was just there like, were a lot of uh, acronyms to remember and keep on top of. And I'm pretty sure halfway through... They make a mistake and switch a letter in one of their acronyms. Oh, really? It still makes sense. It's quite clear what it is. But I couldn't see it used anywhere else. But they did use something else that was very similar. Whoops. Um, yeah, that was one of them. They actually measured four things. The first was the ECG to see the rhythm and electric signals of the heart to see if they were normal. The second, they measured the pressure the snake was exerting by putting a hydraulic pressure probe on the rat so they could actually see how hard the yeah. rat was being squeezed and thirdly they took the pressure in the rodent's veins using a catheter so they could just tell how much pressure the blood was under and the fourth thing they did was that they analyzed the chemistry of the blood so they could mm. actually see what was being put into the blood which the rat was circulating around its body and whether the levels of different compounds were yeah. normal. How the blood chemistry changed under extreme pressure. Exactly, yeah, which is pretty grisly. So yeah, they they were very thoroughly looking at exactly what happens when a boa constrictor grabs hold of a rat and constricts it. For those that don't know, the boa method of dispatching prey is quite well documented. Many of you have probably seen it firsthand. Yeah, and if you haven't seen an actual legitimate snake doing it, there'll be some monster movie-esque snake doing it, doing it to some poor, unsuspecting B-movie star. <laughs> yeah, undoubtedly. The way they dispatch their prey, they first strike the head or shoulders. Um, they've got long, recurved teeth that catch and hold the prey. Boas, boa constrictors, actually have four rows on top and two on the bottom. Um, the bottom rows are on the lower jaw, same as us, the mandible. But the upper rows, of, of which there are four, there's two on the maxilla, which is the normal upper jaw, like we have. But they also have two rows of teeth on bones that make up the palate, which is like the rest of the inside of the mouth, basically like the bit that joins your mouth to your head in the inside. Yes. Yes, that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, one of those bones is actually the bone which makes up the floor of their nasal cavity. You can kind of imagine that bit at the back of your mouth. Just layered with teeth. Just layered with teeth. That's it, what birds are working it, it with. It conjures an image of a shark's mouth. Yes, and they are similar to sharks in that their teeth are constantly replaced. Yes, yeah, so that's pretty useful. Yeah, because... I, as long as that's not painful, I could go for that. Just <laughs> new teeth. Well, yeah, keep them fresh. Yeah, it would be it's a pain to brush your teeth, actually. It'd be yeah, nice to... Just get some new ones in at the weekend. Job done. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're pretty well equipped to kill. Anyway, they grab with these all these teeth, grab hold of the prey, and once they've got it in their jaws, they very quickly throw one or two loops of the body around it, usually around the ribcage if they can. Uh, the snake then applies compression around the entire animal. So the whole circumference of the animal is actually being squashed at one time, which is pretty thorough of the snakes. 
um, and they do this until the animal dies or is completely incapacitated. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a lot of detail you've gone into there, but it, it really does beg mentioning, because it's such a fascinating... Well, number one, it's just fascinating. Number two, you're dealing with an animal that has no limbs. I mean, you think everything else that hunts, it grabs it, it bites it. Job yeah. done. That's quite hard to do when uh, you've got nothing to grab them with but your mouth, and you've got to dispatch it quickly so you don't get hurt in the process. Well, yeah, because you think about it, a rat and a snake, if the snake didn't have the tools that we know they have and you put them in a box together, you'd think they were pretty well matched. Yeah. Like, rats are well equipped. They've got serious teeth. They've got claws. They've um, got some decent agility. They're not stupid. No, exactly. Yeah, they're pretty switched on animals. So, basically, boas and all other constricting snakes have evolved a really, really neat little mechanism for killing prey. And actually... A lot of people think that it's a really key component in why snakes became so diverse and successful, and it contributed a lot to their adaptive radiation, which is them spreading to like the myriad of different niches that we see them in today, mm. was this constriction early on in their evolution actually kind of propelled them into worldwide success almost. Yeah, and it's also amazingly efficient, this constriction. Getting straight into what they found were... Peak, peak constriction, as they termed it, occurred six seconds after biting the prey. You can strolling along, minding your own time. Bam, you've been hit by a snake. Six seconds later, <laughs> you've got this, this, this thing wrapped around you, causing massive, as we'll, we'll find out, massive changes to your blood chemistry, to the pressures, to your part, to just the way your body's functioning. Six seconds. That is incredibly brutal. It makes a lot of sense when you're talking suffocation takes... Yeah, that's going to take a lot longer. It makes a lot of sense that these snakes want to dispatch the prey fast and just get it done. Yeah. I mean, even... I mean, we can hold our breath for minutes, but, I mean, a mouse with their high metabolism is presumably a lot slower. But even still, 30 seconds of struggling versus... Six six seconds (laughs) of going from, yeah, you can survive this encounter to, well, you're done, essentially... It definitely is one of the things that makes me think snakes unbelievably cool. Just the outright mercilessness of their approach. (laughs) They're just like, no holes barred. You're You're getting slain immediately. There's no, you know, there's no hanging around. Six seconds. So you mentioned that six seconds. Within six seconds, the blood pressure in the central body cavity was six times higher than what it was prior to the strike. While the blood, the blood pressure in the extremities dropped by a half. And that's really key, because if you don't have the periphery higher than your core blood pressure, essentially your blood can't move properly and efficiently around your system. It completely disrupts the circulation of your blood. That's pretty key. (laughs) Yeah. So we need blood. Need blood. Yeah. No animal that has blood. I mean, I don't know. Can do without it. Yeah. I I think that's quite safe safe to say. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know all the animals and all the bloods. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if it you've got blood, you need the blood. quite important. Your blood might be blue. I don't know what kind of freaky, weird, invertebrate creature you are, but you need your blood. So keep hold of it. The other thing, the second, I mean, there's a few things of which these rats are going through, which I do not, you know. I, ever experience. Yeah, yeah. I can, uh, yeah, I, so I don't envy them. Increase in central blood pressure paired with a halving of peripheral blood pressure we then have a big drop in heart rate in the first 30 seconds. I had to... Apart from a few rats that happen to have an increase in heart rate and then rapidly caught up with the other rats that 
you know, just decline straight away. So it seems like heart rate is not as big a deal, but some rats might have got lucky and panicked. I, I don't know what caused that yeah. boost in heart rate, but it didn't help. Yeah, the, 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 the average heart rate of the rats was less than half its normal rate within 60 seconds. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty serious. Across the board, too. That's every rat. And so, towards the end of constriction, rat extremity blood pressure was really low. It was a third of its former level. Heart rate was a quarter. Central blood pressure was only just over one-sixth its original level. So that, which had originally completely exploded, was now down because the heart's just not working anymore. Yeah, everything's everything's shot at this point. Yeah. (laughs) The ECG also showed that in 91% of their rats, the cardiac electrical system had completely malfunctioned. Well, exactly. Basically, everything they measured became either arrhythmic, abnormal, or completely broken within that minute. It was just a complete destruction of the <laughs> cardiac system. It, was, I mean, it sounds horrific if you were the rat, but it's phenomenal from the snake's perspective. It's, I mean, talk about overkill. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. And, but wait, there's even more. Oh, yeah, there is more. Because the, we only talked about the blood chemistry yeah, the going blood chemistry. completely to So, shock. I'd not heard of this term before. Hyperkalemic. Which mm. means that the serum potassium levels are high, and in this case they were nearly doubled. Um, which, believe it or not, if you've got wrong potassium levels in your blood, guess what it does to you? It kills you real yeah. fast. But do you know why? It disrupts the normal function of the heart. <laughs> exactly. And so you've already got a heart which has basically exploded. Now you've got your potassium levels to worry about, which I thought was interesting. They postulated that. The reason for that is that even if a rat escapes and it catches its breath and its blood pressure starts to go back to normal... It's already done. Yeah, the potassium level is going to creep back up on it and the snake can simply seek it out later. So this is... I'm going to hopefully mention cane toads in absolutely every episode we ever do of this. I can't say I'm surprised. But sodium-potassium pump, which is the part of the cell that cane toad toxin acts upon, is heavily involved in guess what? the moderation of potassium along with sodium and calcium and other ions and guess how you die from bufonid toxin it's arrhythmic cardiac stuff it's it's to do with heart and muscle contraction horrible yeah horrible cane toads <laughs> well not just cane toads boas yeah boas do it too using potassium against you using your own potassium against you and i mean hellish and in one final flurry of just wanton destruction <laughs> The rats also undergo acidiosis, which is where their blood pH changes from 7.4 to 7.0. So it becomes quite significantly more acidic, Yeah, which leads to horrible cell damage. So you got that in the mix as well. In the course of my research about what acidiosis meant, because it could have been honest, I didn't know. Um, There's a lot of medical terms in the yeah, paper which I'm require a... double checking. <laughs> yeah. The same thing, acidiosis, is what happens to you if you drink methanol. Mmm. See, it's just this perfect storm of really unpleasant occurrences. Yeah, because methanol is sort of like number one on the things not to drink, isn't it? And yet, here it is. (laughs) The rats are undergoing the same exact phenomenon. Poor little creatures. Note to stealth, do not get eaten by a large constrictor. Thankfully, well, I mean... I really hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Seems unlikely, yeah. yeah. It does seem unlikely. Oh, man. I mean, what a cool paper. Unbelievably, the first ever evidence of the physiological response 
of prey to being constricted. Yeah, and I felt they did a really thorough job <laughs> of, of working out what was going on. It was really informative. We, we covered essentially everything there, but there were also little added bits of actual tissue damage occurring because of lack of lack of oxygen, not because of oxygen levels being depressed in the blood, but more blood not getting to areas. And they think that maybe one of the reasons creatures go unconscious so quickly from constriction is lack of oxygen reaching the brain and the brain being damaged by that starvation. Terrible. And the other bit that we keep keep drawing to is how quickly this is occurring. And that's something that makes so much evolutionary sense. You're dealing with a prey creature which presumably has some level of defense. You want to get in there, kill it as quickly as possible so the risk is minimized to you. And it's the same principle in having a really potent toxin, toxic venom or something. Kill it fast, minimize risk, job done. Yeah. And this did lead me on to reading another Bobak paper. Uh, Bobak uh, 2012, talking about, well, entitled Snake Modulates Constriction in Response to Prey's Heartbeat in Biological Letters. And this was really fascinating in my books. These were a very similar sort of study. You got your constrictors, but this time they've attached fake heartbeats to the dead rats, and they're looking at the difference in how long the snakes will constrict the rat for with the fake or non-existent heartbeat. And if you keep the heartbeat going, they'll constrict them for longer to make sure it's dead. They can feel that heartbeat and they are reacting to the still-beating heart of the rat or not. Yeah, I mean, that's insanely grisly. Yeah. But again, just really impressive. They're not just, you know, they're not just these, like, mindless killers. There's some stuff going on there. Oh, yeah, it's a refined system. They're not... This is not a brute force animal, even though it looks mm. brutish. <laughs> that's genius, though, because that just allows so much more efficiency. Yeah. Just, well, it's dead, time to stop. Because constriction must be energetically very costly for these animals which birth constrictors. They're a sedentary animal. Mm. So this is the biggest exertion they probably undergo. Yeah, unless they're fleeing something. But yeah. I can't presume that massively often for mm. a snake that high up the food chain. Yeah. So one, one element of research which this paper highlights a need to look into further is um, the effect of constriction on non-mammalian prey. So lizards... Yes, yes, they mentioned iguanas specifically, didn't they? Yeah, Mm. because um, it should be that the tissues of endothermic prey are more affected by constriction than ectothermic. So warm-blooded would be worse affected than cold-blooded. Yes. Um, Because lizards, for example, need a lot less oxygen to run than a mammal. But that might mean that constriction could take longer because it takes longer to have the same effects. There are a couple of papers evidencing this, one of which is Reed et al. 2006. Natural history, attempted predation on Stenosaura melanosterna, where a lizard just takes ages to die Mm. while being constricted. Well, it plays into the the heartbeat aspect, isn't it? They've got some way of monitoring how their prey's doing to know when to relieve. And what's also interesting is it seems like they will constrict well beyond a mammal's de- a, m- a mammal's dead yeah. at all going to die 30 to 60 seconds into this constriction process. Okay, a, an ectotherm might take a bit longer, but it seems to be the average constriction time or the average time that they'll 
hold on to prey is around 12 minutes, which is quite frankly excessive for mammals, isn't it? We've just talked about how the cardiac system's destroyed rapidly. So I think maybe one of the reasons for that 12 minute period is because it's evolved during a time that ectothermic prey may have been more prevalent or their primary quarry. Yeah, it could well be. Funnily enough, Hardy, who we mentioned earlier in his 94 paper, he he also thought that um, lizards may not actually be killed by constriction, but just exhausted to a point where they're completely immobilised. So their heart might still be beating, but for the time it takes them to actually be eaten, they're good for nothing. The take-home from that is that boas are... Phenomenal killing machines. Yeah. And, yeah, justified and everyone thinking they're extremely cool. Yeah, I mean, you, you tend to think of these super deadly snakes as being the venomous ones. But the arsenal boas have is equal, really. Well, it kind of reminds me of um, people's criticisms of the LD50, which is the measure of how many... It's a measure of venom potency, which... Mm refers to what percentage, how much venom it takes to kill 50% of lab mice. And that's all well and good. But then if you consider that venomous snakes often have evolved to have a venom which dispatches frogs, then it's completely irrelevant. And in this case, while a boa constrictor may not pose any threat to a human, to their prey, you know, they might as well be Mm. a T-Rex. They're that ridiculously effective in killing stuff. So, yeah, I think you have to always kind of talk about the animals in their context yeah they have to be yes. in context it has to be relative exactly it has yes. to be relative I feel like the your LD50 point well is valid LD50 has a lot of problems it's at least standardised so because how frequently I, I don't feel like LD50 is frequently brought up to talk about prey interactions it's more the human snake bite aspect yeah, which we do know how it works in terms of human physiology yeah well, if yeah, I feel like a lot of the venom studies you're going to get their prey items to test on and do assays on their prey items to really get something that's ecologically relevant. Mm. And LD fifty is just going to be tacked on so people know, and not actually be the core of the paper. Yeah, but then yeah, definitely. Another problem with LD fifty though is it doesn't doesn't take into account how much venom is delivered either. Yeah, yeah. But I agree, I, yeah, you are absolutely right. It, it needs more context, that's all we're really saying, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we're agreeing, yeah, but yeah. from two different directions. <laughs> yeah, no, I am agreeing, I agree. Um, cool. With that, should we start on the second paper? I think so, I think we're moving on to something, keep that image of small mammal getting... An- annihilated. Annihilated by uh, a large constricting snake in your mind as we move on to uh, Danette's 2017, Coordinated Hunting by Cuban Boas in Animal Behaviour and Cognition. So, um, Cuban Boas. Well, I think what's more exciting about that title than Cuban Boas... You know, I'm not dissing Cuban Boas, but Coordinated Hunting? It sounds exciting, doesn't it? Reptiles? What? Reptiles don't coordinate things. Reptiles are lone killers. We've talked (laughs) about how good they are at it. They don't work as teams. They don't need to. They're too good. However... In this instance, they do. So, coordinated hunting is defined as more than just hunting in a group where animals just go to the same place based on the same stimulus. For example, loads of animals go into the same place because there's loads of food there. Yes. In coordinated hunting, 
the individual predators relate to each other's actions in time and space in real time they're considering the actions of their colleagues if you will yes it's not by chance it is by some level of design yeah they are gone isn't however in this case coordinated behavior does not require communication that's important to know it is because that's what you you think, ah, oh, coordinate hunters, you've got wolves working together, they're talking to each other, they're communicating in some, you know, some level, and it's this big, socially coordinated, cohesive group, all working towards the same goal, and the same target. This is not what we're talking about here. This is animals taking into account others' positions and behaviour, but not necessarily communicating with them, and also not targeting the same individual prey item that they're going for different items it would not work if two snakes tried to eat the same thing they would end up with one snake accidentally eating another snake mm, so it might work for one snake. Oh yeah one snake gets a double whammy <laughs> and the other snake's just like oh man <laughs> it certainly wouldn't be something the, the snakes would be repeating yeah i'm just picturing a really grim version of lady and the tramp oh where <laughs> the spaghetti the whole thing goes in goodness me terrible what an image but yeah, I mean, <laughs> that as weird, if as if weird. a rat's heart exploding wasn't bad enough. Now we've got lady completely engulfing tramp. Oh, childhood destroyed. Yeah, yeah. terrible. So um, <laughs> these Cuban boas. Well, you've got. Hang on a minute. I remember. Uh, I've got some. I've got some examples. I wanted to dig into these other examples of reptilian supposed coordinated behaviour because it seems to me such a weird and bizarre thing. So I followed up on some of their references. First lot that caught my eye, ah, monitor lizards. We know those guys are smart. But they provided two references. One was from the 1930s. Couldn't get a hold of that. That seems to be lost in, I don't know, physical prints, I presume. The other was from the newsletter of Gipps Plain Conservation Management Network. Um, I've got a subscription. Yeah? I've never heard of it. (laughs) 2007, written by James and Fox, entitled The Largest of Lizards. They're basically talking about monitor lizards in this this Gibbs Plain area, wherever that is. And there is a sentence about once some guy saw two monitor lizards maybe going for the same rabbit warren or something along those lines. I mean, I presume there's more to it than that. Maybe the authors got in, to- in contact with these guys and there's... You know, there wasn't anything there to be like, oh yeah, those those guys are working together. But I, what I did find, and what is far more interesting, is good old crocodiles. They seem to be exhibiting some intriguing behaviour. We have various instances documented by the same guy who's doing this coordinated boa paper, uh, Donetz, in 2014. And he wrote a paper again, Apparent Coordination and Collaboration in Cooperative Hunting Crocodiles. Sorry, Crocodilians. Uh, in Ethology, Ecology and Evolution. Great bit of alliteration in that paper. What an awesome name. Oh, yeah, fantastic. So this essentially tells the story or reports on a whole bunch of... What, what really amounts to anecdotal evidence of crocodiles... I mean, herding is a word they use in it, but basically there's some crocodiles and they push the prey towards the other crocodiles. Other crocodiles have a feast as whatever frogs, fish, whatever prey items are flushed to them and, well, they eat them. 
That's so sneaky. I wouldn't have associated that kind of a behaviour with crocodiles. Crocodiles. I've seen them. I've seen like gharials and things all sitting in the same waterfall. So it would seem as though fish couldn't easily pass them all. Mm. They're like in a line. But But whether that's coordinated, yeah, that's that's the real distinction that all these papers are having a problem with is trying to get inside the mind of these animals. I'm maybe one reason we're disinclined to believe crocodiles are working together because they look like dinosaurs. And dinosaurs have been said to have small brains and to be stupid. Mm. You know, no one... What's this based on? I mean, no one really knows what a dinosaur did or not. And that association's not particularly fair either. But is that sort of cultural baggage we have with these animals making us less likely to believe them? I mean, translate this same behaviour to a chimp or a mammal. Are we going to be more likely to believe that and think, oh, yeah... Those, those chimps are working together. That chimp is chasing those monkeys to those chimps so they can rip them to shreds. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you wouldn't really think twice. A, you're just feeding your own sort of, like, biases that these are just dumb animals. Yeah. Big, it's, it's... scaly idiots that live in a pond. Exactly. Actually, there's probably a lot more to them. <laughs> there's always going to be more to them. I mean, you know, how long have crocodiles survived? Millions upon millions of years. Archosaurs have been around since back in the day. Yeah, they're pretty tough. They're doing something right. So, got these these ones herding herding species to getting them. And this this happened in all sorts of different crocodilian species. We had American alligators, we had mugger crocodiles, we had spectacled caiman, and Nile crocodiles. A whole bunch of species all exhibiting this similar behaviour. There was one instance of a really, well, perhaps a more convincing anecdote, was a crocodile chasing a pig. Pig walking along the bank, minding its own business. Next thing it knows, crocodile coming at it. But not in a sort of, I'm going to get you kind of way. It was more in a, I'm going to scare you off. It was this big, big threat display as opposed to a more actual like a, predation attempt. More like a bluff. A little bit like a bluff, yeah. You know, what happened was this pig fled the crocodile like any normal mammal would. Any self-respecting pig would run from a crocodile. Dude, if I was a pig, I'd be... <laughs> See I'd be ya! <laughs> pig didn't know that where it ran was straight into the mouth of two crocodile buddies just on the other side of the bank. And there you go. Pig gets got by those guys. All three crocodiles dig in, have a lovely tasty pork meal. The, the breadth and how widespread this is occurring and how many different species are doing it, I feel quite convinced that there is something going on here. Like, okay, it needs to be proven a little bit more thoroughly, but I think there's something to warrant investigation. It's, it's happened too often to make it, yeah. you know, oh, one-off wants this crocodile chase some fish and some other crocodile ate it. If I really want to try and bring up how smart crocodiles are, or how smart they could be, again, I'm not entirely... convinced by all of this that they actually know precisely what they're doing is another paper by Danette Bruggen and Bruggen in 2015, same journal Ethology, Ecology and Evolution Crocodilians use tools for hunting. That title you could replace crocodilians with orangutans and people (laughs) probably wouldn't bat an eyelid So these crocodiles have bow and arrows, is that right? Yeah, they're just (laughs) they're just capping fish left and right they love it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, this is this is uh, rather fantastic. These guys are a couple of species doing this. We've got mugger crocodiles once again, and we have got American alligators. 
And what these crocodiles are doing, these guys are going for egrets and other sort of wading birds that nest around wetland areas. And what they're doing is sitting there in the top of the water and laying sticks along their their snouts. Yeah. And what will happen is the egret comes down, oh yeah, I'm building a nest, grab some sticks, bam, got by the croc, job done, game over for the egret. And you think, oh yeah, it's just fine, it's just sticks happen to land on the crocodile's snout and it's taking advantage of it. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree. We're all sceptical, as we said, when it comes to big animals that look like dinosaurs using their guile and wit. <laughs> Whether that's fair or not, we are. So, but you look in the timing of it, and it really seems to happen all around very early breeding season for the egrets, around this nest breeding. That's when it occurs most, and when you see it most. Other time of year, eh, not so much. And it's not like these rivers are filled with sticks either. rest of the river... Yeah, you don't see many sticks. They're all stuck on the crocodile's snouts. Mm. Yes, it needs more investigation to really just hammer home. Yeah, this is something that they know what they're doing. But my gosh, it's very interesting. And I don't know, I'm, I'm convinced that these crocodiles might know more than we, we give them credit for. I mean, I've just seen a photo of it. And uh, it is quite funny. <laughs> There's just this crocodile sat in some green water, haphazardly having got three sticks, like literally just resting. It looks so hilariously obvious to me that that is a crocodile. Yeah. But obviously to an egret, if you're hell-bent on finding a stick... You've got mates, to make a nest. Your mate's You've back at the nest man. waiting. You're, yeah. You don't want to look a fool. So you come back with some sticks. Or in this case, oh, the next photo is really grisly. It's just a... A bunch of feathers and a leg sticking out of a crocodile's mouth. Yeah, alligator's mouth, but yeah. Oh, I should have known. Look at those teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Fool. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was really fascinating for me because I hadn't really dug into reptile coordinated or, or these sort of weird problem solving, cool, smart behaviours. Yeah. Know, it's just not something I'd ever read about. But bring it, trying to bring it back, you know, keeping it on boas. There are instances of boas doing pretty smart things. Um, there's a Rochasantus barbier and Bordignon, I believe you say that, 2014 paper called Sweet Trap, Boa Constrictor Preying on Passerines on said Cropia Pachystachia, perhaps, Just... in fruiting period. It's some, <laughs> it's some form of tree. I'm yeah. sure there's a real way of pronouncing that, but it's a long name and it's... So these guys basically documented this case of boa constrictors all congregating to the same place to take advantage of this occurrence where passerine birds were coming in and getting all the fruit from this species of tree that I can't pronounce the name of. No one knows what species of tree that was based on your pronunciation. <laughs> Someone can look it up, it's fine. <laughs> but the point is that these boas, if, if you weren't looking closely enough, oh yeah they're all working together and getting these birds they're not they're just taking advantage of the same resource that's encouraging the birds to the same place and it's just a purely circumstantial Mm. so it's almost like they've all gone to the same place with the same stimulus like animals congregating at a watering hole rather than animals coordinated in their attack on the watering hole yes absolutely yeah and that's what separates it hopefully from the Dinette's paper yeah oh right on so this Dinette's paper that we're looking at from this year actually 2017 coordinated hunting by Cuban boas is supposedly the evidence of these Cuban boas hunting in a way which they're taking into account 
their conspecifics. They're looking at where the other Cuban boas are and they're hunting appropriately. So before we get started on exactly how these sneaky Cuban boas are coordinating themselves, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the species themselves. Yes, yeah, please do. So um, Cuban boas, any guesses where they're from? Um, Jamaica? <laughs> no. Cuba? Yes. They're actually from Cuba and the surrounding islets and Cays. Cays being tiny little islands, just a little nickname for tiny, tiny islands, I believe. Cuba is the largest West Indian island, and correspondingly, this boa is the largest West Indian snake. As long as you ignore the green anacondas on Trinidad, but whatever. Trinidad's quite a special case, isn't it? It's, it's got a, a special connection to mainland uh, South America. It's weird. It's really close, so obviously the green anacondas swimming over there and just doing their thing, whereas yeah. these are... All got picked up by a big bird. Yeah, I mean, it's the biggest of the island endemic snakes, which is what makes the West Indies so cool. So mm. there's a little bit more information about where I, well, where I got that information in Marco Shea's book, Boas and Pythons of the World. It's nicely put together. Some of the stuff needs, obviously, updating, but that's just the realm of science. Cuban boas. Their scientific name is Kylobothrus angulifer, ancient Greek kylos, which is lip, a, which is without, and bothros, which is pits. So their generic name literally translates to without lip pits and that references the absence of heat sensitive labial pits which a lot of boas and pythons have mm. with which they can sense infrared heat in the environment so these boas do not have that and they're therefore named Kylobothrus. Um so these snakes get up to allegedly around four or five meters long but it would seem that <laughs> as always there's not that much evidence for snakes that big um, 1.5 to 2.5 meters is yeah. much more common. It's... There's always going to be a weird one that lives in the, I don't know, the city dump and just gorges itself on rats, and it's just this freak of a snake. And yeah. So it's renowned in the local area as, I don't know, Big Betsy who lives in the town dump. And, oh yeah, <laughs> biggest one around. Or there's just that one that your cousin saw that time when he was with his mate, <laughs> but his mate doesn't remember it well because he'd been drinking. But your cousin insists. It was five metres long. Oh, five metres long power, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> yeah, sure, man. Yeah, sure, mate. Um, but yeah, these snakes, they're kind of a tan background with the variable blotches, zigzags of darker brown on the back. Quite a striking snake. Um, not as nice looking as a They've got quite nice big eyes for a boa, too. They're, they're, I mean, if that makes a snake cute, which to me, they look a little bit cuter than the, the I mean, angry looking vipers. Yeah, I mean, it stands to reason that they'd have big eyes because the whole thing about this paper is that they're hunting bats in caves. So at night. At night, yeah. So, <laughs> they're, uh, you know, it'd make a lot of sense. Um, we'll get more into their eating of bats in a sec because that is what this paper sort of pivots mm. around. And crushing them in six seconds. <laughs> brutal. Absolutely brutal. It, Snakes are merciless. I mean, you've got to keep that in your mind during this paper is that's what's happening These all these times we're going to be talking about is that, bam, done. Bats dead. Lights out, game over. Yeah, say goodbye to normal heart function. <laughs> but I was talking... <laughs> never never to be seen again. But then I was talking about this uh, Kylobothros angulifer. You may have heard of it before as Epicrates angulifer. Um, the taxon taxonomy changed in 2013 following a Reynolds et al. paper in Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution. The reason for that is that there's actually a deep divergence in the West Indian boas. Mm. The West Indian boas have been completely separated from the mainland boas. The West Indian boas likely rafted from South America in the Oligocene or early Miocene periods, which 
in layman's terms, is just 20 to 30 million years ago. Yeah, thank you. I didn't have those numbers off the top of my head, that's (laughs) for sure. I just like, you know, Oligocene and Miocene, trying to use those words in the hopes that I'll understand them and they'll mean something to me. (laughs) One day, you'll remember. One day, I'll just have them off the cuff. But yeah, 20 to 30 million years ago, which is a fair amount of time, even like, you know, evolutionarily. Then after they arrived in the West Indies, they radiated into 10 species. Spoiler alert, it might actually be 11 species now. I think we'll be hearing about that 11th species a little bit later. Yeah, maybe so. Um, Unfortunately, the species we're talking about, the Cuban boa, is actually classified as near-threatened by the IUCN, which is the uh, International Union for Conservation of Nature. And they are the go-to organisation for classifying species and deciding whether or not they're in need of some kind of protection. So most times when you hear someone say, such and such a species is threatened or endangered or extinct it's the IUCN that provides those classifications the reason for Cuban boas being classified as near threatened isn't what you might think it's not your your typical habitat destruction or anything like that and that's because they can actually survive reasonably well in disturbed and agricultural areas it's actually because they're directly persecuted so people actively go out and kill them see I find that quite surprising for a boa because they're not you know, they're not venomous, they're not going to be biting your dog and your kid. And I can't imagine they're having that much impact on, on livestock, eating your chickens or something, to the point of being persecuted so much it's threatening their, their population. That's, I mean, it's not that surprising for a snake, but I would say it was quite surprising for a non-venomous snake. It is weird. It is strange to think. Um, who knows, it could be some kind of um, cultural bias. I don't know. I don't know anything about Cuban attitude towards snakes no no it 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 could well be that just um education is required i don't know yeah it does feel like a solvable problem at least because people surely people aren't being commonly hurt by these boas yeah it's not like telling people they can't farm that's just unbelievably unreasonable but (laughs) you can sort of try and convince people that actually you know rats bad snakes kind of good yeah worth a try at least yeah so should we move on to the uh meat and potatoes of the paper Mm. on the topic of coordinated hunting the author Donetz was trying to find out if well I don't even know if he was trying to find it out but in the course I say he what's his first name is it a man Vladimir yeah Yeah. he observed nine different boas and he observed them in the course of their attempts to eat fruit bats which are Artibius jamakensis in a sinkhole cave Mm. Um, these sinkhole caves are really cool they're Obviously, limestone casts that we talked about in previous shows. Limestone casts will come up again and again and again. They they are just a beautiful oasis of biodiversity and cool biological happenings. It's just a place to be if you're wildlife. Yeah. Limestone casts. But these sinkhole caves, what's fascinating about them is that they are literally just in the ground. So this cave that he was studying in has a sinkhole leading directly down. And at the bottom of the hole, there's a little chamber, like a circular chamber, which is around the main entrance. And leading off from that is like a corridor. And that corridor leads to a second, smaller circular chamber. And that's where the bats roost. A sub-chamber. A sub-chamber, if you will. Um, and that, isn't that the proper, like, spelunking terminology, sub-chamber? Possibly. I'm not a cave expert, but yeah, we'll go with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so the bats roost in this cave chamber, and which is connected to the main chamber, where the entrance and exit hole is. So if you imagine just a circle and then a bigger circle joined by a line 
that's pretty much your internal cave structure. Yeah. Um, and what these boas were doing was gathering twice a day and trying to hunt the bats as they came and went because the bats roost up all night. Mm, no, like, sorry, the bats roost up all day. They're strictly nocturnal. So they yes. sleep in the day and then come out at night and go back in the very early morning. Yeah, they, they have to fly through this, this bottleneck of a corridor, though. And hey, guess what? That's where you're going to go hunting, where everything's forced into a tight space. It's going to be hard to, harder to escape, harder to get away. And next thing you know, well, your heart's not working properly and <laughs> your uh, peripheral blood pressure's dropped massively. <laughs> Terrible. So in order to explode some bat hearts, the boas would hunt during two periods of the day. Like I said, the evening bat flight as bats leave the roost and pre-dawn as the bats return. The snakes generally got in position 10 to 30 minutes before the evening flight and 20 to 60 minutes before the bats returned in the morning. That, that struck me as odd, why there were these differences between morning and evening for these boas getting there. I mean, they, they clearly know when to be in the right place at the right time. So they're actually earlier in the morning. Yes, they arrive 20 to 60 minutes early in the morning and... 10 to 30 minutes early in the evening. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, okay, the ranges overlap, but there's a big difference between getting there 10 minutes and getting there 60 minutes. Are they, what, they just got themselves together in the evenings more? I don't, I don't know what's driving that. I don't, I don't understand the difference. I, maybe it's light getting into the cave, so their cues are delayed in certain ways, or it gets in more gradually. I mean, I don't know what the surrounding topography is of this cave. It could be that um, exactly that. So before the evening flight, it's much more apparent that it's getting dark. Whereas in the morning flight, it's been dark and it's staying dark and it might not necessarily be getting light yet. Well, yeah, but, and it, yeah. You know, if they're already in the cave, which they are following the evening they might not have the cue of changing light. So they arrive a little bit earlier just because they can't see the light as a cue. So they're kind of erring on the side of caution, yes. maybe. I mean, we kind of... Oh, this is completely yeah, conjecture. We've got, we got no idea. But, but I'm pretty sure that's why. <laughs> I mean, it's the only thing I can think of is they're reacting to light. Curious. Anyway, it is curious. Some sort of internal clock. Who knows? Yeah. Well, when they weren't busily hunting bats... During the daytime, they bask near the cave entrance, catch some sun. And during the night, when they weren't hunting, so between the two hunting periods, they generally stayed in the roost portion of the cave. So that little chamber where the bats roost. Mm. Um, it seems like they may have stayed there because they were kind of already near there anyway, hunting. But then also there's a possibility they might have been able to scavenge some dead bats. Other boas have been known to eat carrion, so it's, it's plausible that that's what they were up to. Could it also be that there's a more stable temperature? I mean, well, I've got no idea. Maybe that cave is permanently colder than the outside, whereas what I've just said makes no sense. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? But, um, yeah, so the it seems like what Danette's noticed was that these snakes were selecting... Well, before I say that, the snake's method of hunting is they climb up the wall of the cave... And they position themselves on the roof of the cave, hanging down and catching bats as they fly past. Yeah, in in flight, which, I mean, what a, I would love to go see that. Bunch of bows hanging down, pulling bats out of the air. What a fun thing to observe. Oof. I mean, it'd be pitch black, so you would need some decent camera or something to see it. Well, but... I think Danette's used infrared light. Done with red light. Was it done with red light, not infrared yeah. light? Yeah, it was just... red light. 
that's disappointing. He said that you needed infrared to be able to uh, do the bat, yeah. um, bat flight paths. So, yeah. yeah, in 33 hunting attempts, only two snakes were unsuccessful, mm. which is incredible to think that snakes would have that high of a success rate. You associate snakes with just sitting and waiting for ages. And... Well, that, I mean, I feel like that's impressive for any animal. You go out and you pretty much guaranteed a meal, night after night as well. It is crazy, actually. They've done a good job. Yeah. They know what they're doing. But what's interesting is that both the times that snakes were unsuccessful, they were the only snakes on the ceiling, which is probably where the idea for this paper arose. Anytime there was more than one snake, that is, there was a snake already on the ceiling and another snake came, the other snake, the second snake, would position itself near to the snake that was already up there, kind of forming... A little bit of a barrier across the top because this, like we said, the corridor is quite narrow. Yes, they, he subdivided the corridor into segments, and snakes tended to pick the same segment if a snake was already present. And the most amount of snakes that were ever doing it at the same time was three. Yeah, and they were both times they were in the same area, which is pretty cool. And um, he had some figures for how long it took the snakes to actually catch bats. Yeah, this was what was good. It's not just more successful. But you don't even have to try as hard for as long. Yeah. So if there was only one snake on the ceiling, then they took 19 minutes to capture it. It is worth mentioning that only happened once that a lone snake caught a bat. Which also speaks of how frequently, out of 33 attempts, you know, you have three instances of a lone snake. The rest, there is some... You know, coordinated level, hunting level of coordination. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it only so it took 19 minutes for the lone snake. It took an average of 10 minutes when there were two snakes, and it only took six and a half minutes when there were three snakes. So the number of boas present had a significant effect on the time to capture a bat. And you see those those instances of coordinated hunting. These snakes are going to spend longer constricting the bat than they have waiting for the bat to appear. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I mean, that's, I mean, that seems like a free and easy meal, doesn't it? Yeah. So the theory is that um, it's harder for the bats to avoid the dangling boas when the boas are spread across the ceiling, which makes good sense. Yes, they've restricted the space that the bats can fly in and increased the chances that they're going to fly near within strike range or just hit a boa. Some of them, they collided with the boas and then, well, that was that. Game over. Yeah. Goodbye cardiac function. <laughs> <clears throat> Sweet. So, um... I mean, it's it's pretty cut and dry, this paper. These are Chylobothrus, Angulifer, the Cuban boa, seem to hunt in yeah, I, teams. I, I think so. At least there, there seems to be more success when they're using similar, you know, the same segment along this corridor. Individuals didn't pick, like, a personal preference of segment over where other snakes were. I think, really... It's quite convincing in a lot of ways. The only drawback is that we just need more data. Yeah. Seven individuals, one cave, 33 hunting attempts. How representative is this of a wider population or just this population in total? That's all I really want. It's just more. More of what has been done. I feel like the methodology is is there to, to infer coordination. Yeah, just do it again. Watch some more boas. I'll volunteer myself. I'll go and sit in a cave with a red light looking at boas eating bats for as many nights as you want me to. Yeah, I I think it's really neat. And I think it's a really 
cool behaviour which I'd never heard of for snakes. Although they do point to a couple of examples that definitely need some proper scientific effort rigging behind them. <laughs> some rigour, exactly. Both filmed by the BBC. Both most people have probably seen at some point. Planet Earth or Planet Earth 2. First one is the banded sea crates. And these guys, a whole big group of them just swarmed over this coral reef. Digging into holes, eating fish, flushing them out. And that was oh, just feeding frenzy of banded sea crates. Quite a remarkable clip. With both these that I'm talking about shoved links in the in the show notes so you can go see for yourself. Great footage. And of course, it's planet Earth. Second one I'm sure everybody's heard of and almost definitely seen. And that's those poor little marine iguanas. Those <laughs> baby marine iguanas. Their first look at sunlight. Bam, you've got a Galapagos racer yeah. bearing down on you, chasing you to the rocks. I mean, that's some stunning footage there. I think that's one of the best bits of planet Earth. And classically, they've cut it together. It's impossible not to empathise. And you've got reaction been. shots, close-ups of these little marine iguanas with their big doughy eyes. <laughs> you've got to feel for them. I was cheering for the snake, I've got to be honest, but it was pretty awesome. <laughs> remarkably, there's been no published scientific data on these, mm. these instances. I mean, that is... Then, I mean... That's a whole... Yeah, right? someone someone should be doing that. Perhaps they are, who knows, but... I mean, I hope they are. The point remains that there is a lot of scope to study this coordinated hunting in snakes. Oh, yeah. If yeah. you're listening and you have money and want to go study some cool snake behaviour, get yourself out to banded sea crate territory or the Galapagos. I think just thoroughly describe these behaviours would be a good first step. Measure times and numbers of snakes. Yeah, pick, just, it, pick it apart. Just get some basic data. Excellent. So, um, from one West Indian boa to another, shall we move on to the third and final paper? Yeah, it's pretty consistent. We're staying, staying West Indies boa, and we're even staying near caves. So, this final paper is by Puente Rolon Reynolds. Graham Reynolds and Ravel, 2013, Preliminary Genetic Analysis Supports Cave Populations as Targets for Conservation in the Endemic Endangered Puerto Rican Boa, Boidae Epicrates inornatus, now called, as we know, Chylobothrus inornatus. So, snake without heat pits and is also undecorated. Which I think is very harsh. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I think calling any snake inornatus dramatically unfair that one in the photo there's a, there's a photo of one in the paper and that one is actually a hypomelanistic one so it's actually lighter than most it's a bit of a cheat really because yeah you're like yeah that is completely undecorated it, it hardly has a pattern it's almost untextured I think you're being grossly unfair it's a beautiful snake <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't beautiful <laughs> but in ornate makes me think I guess, I guess maybe it's more to do with like pattern intricacy well think, it think about it the other way it's not decadent Oh, okay, yeah, maybe that's less offensive. Yeah. Nevertheless, I still think it's, they could have come up with something better. It's a refined snake. Yeah. I would it knows have... what it likes, and it's plain and silvery. I would have come up with something better if it was me, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> what would you come up with? Um, maybe Chylobothrus striatus. Striatus. Stripey. Stripey. Mm. It's got some stripes on it. Yeah, I mean, it's not really the, the most inventive in names, but... It's descriptive, so it gets my vote. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these guys, all name controversy aside, are looking at whether 
the genetic diversity of this, this species of boa across Puerto Rico can be conserved by just looking at certain populations and to make sure that if you lost some of the populations, you're not losing a lot of genetic diversity or a special lineage or anything like that. They're looking to see whether or not they are genetically distinct populations, aren't they? Because if that's the case, then you've got to be careful about conserving enough variety that represents the species as a whole. Because you can't, if two populations are genetically distinct and you introduce one to the other to try and like bolster the population, you could end up with outbreeding depression where mm. the resultant mixing actually leads to snakes which are weak. Yes, so they're slightly less adapted to one particular area or they're losing diversity. That's a, yeah. yeah. An example would be, this isn't necessarily the case. In fact, it isn't the case. The snake had adapted to living on a beach and it had gone a bit more of a sandy colour as compared to its compatriots in a cave, which was still darker. And you mixed the two. That darkening of the babies that were born would put them at a disadvantage on the beach because they'd st stick out like a sore thumb. That's a very simplified example, but it that's is. what outbreeding depression can be. Yes, it's loss of, loss of nuance in some ways. Exactly, yeah. But also you don't want the opposite of that, which would be inbreeding depression, where you have all these populations which are separate and fragmented and so restricted in numbers and population that inbreeding occurs and you get... Horrible side effects from that. There are examples in European adders of ones with crooked spines and all sorts of horrible side effects from having these low, restricted, fragmented populations. If you want to, if you want to know about European vipers, that's Vipera berus. Check out papers by Madsen. He's done a hop. There's, there's a whole bunch by Madsen and other, other folk he's worked with good go-to one would be inbreeding depression in an isolated population of adders by Paraberis in Biological Conservation, published in 1996. Important to note, though, that that's pretty much the opposite of what we're discussing here. Inbreeding depression... Yes, is, it's, yeah. it's the opposite extreme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're discussing out, outbreeding depression. Yeah, so how they did this was travel around Puerto Rico, grab a bunch of snakes, some live in caves, some don't live in caves, get a variety of samples, I think it was 86 in total, from different areas and different surface and cave populations. And then what they did, they sequenced certain aspects of those individuals' DNA. And what they did was this microsatellite analysis, which essentially you pick out a whole bunch of little bits of gene and the differences between those which tend to have, you know, whatever mutations or substitutions occurring in those bits give you a level of divergence or genetic difference between populations or even within populations. That's what's neat with microsatellite, is it's sensitive enough to do things like kinship analysis and all sorts like that. So you that. can work out whether individuals are related to each other. Yeah, if you went into that much detail and had sufficient knowledge of that individual's or that species' genome, yeah. Cool. So they, they did this microsatellite genotyping with four populations, did they not? Two cave and two non-cave. And uh, they compared whether or not the cave populations were genetically distinct enough from the non-cave populations to warrant them being conserved separately. 
Yeah, that was the whole point of this study, was to find out whether you could conserve the whole species by just conserving caves, or do you have to take into account multiple different populations and save them all individually, because they all constituted different lineages. And what they found was, yeah, caves are, caves are good. Caves are doing great, in fact. These caves and the cave populations had individuals that represented all lineages they found across the island. So the genetic makeup of the caves was not massively dissimilar from the makeup of your surface-dwelling dwellers. So you can conserve one and you can serve the whole lot. That's pretty great. I mean, that is good. I My concern is that when they find out stuff like this, it could lead to lackluster conservation efforts because they're like, <laughs> hey, we got that one cave of bows. Yeah, we can use that to repopulate the whole place. But um, what is also... The fact that they're so closely related and they're not genetically distinct makes the fact that they behave profoundly differently really exciting because... Well, it's quite a different environment for an animal to deal with, isn't it? A cave compared to surface. Yeah. Just light alone is pretty distinct. Am I right in saying that these were hunting bats, much like the boas from Cuba? Yeah, so they did hunt bats in a similar sort of fashion to the ones in Cuba. Biggest difference being these guys aren't team players. There's a paper that looks into their spatial ecology and basically how these guys are living their lives. Went Rollen and Bird Pico in 2004, foraging behaviour, home range, movements and activity patterns of Epicrates inornatus. So this is essentially a classic spatial ecology paper using a bit of radio telemetry to work out where the boas are and how they're using their environment. And they found pretty restricted home ranges for these boas, only 138 metres squared up to 18,000 metres squared. Sounds like quite a lot, but think about it in hectares, that's only 1.8 hectares, still quite, quite constrained. And the reason we think that that's basically possible and why it's happening is this incredibly high prey density that the caves are supplying, which really adds to their viability as a conservable unit or, or place where you can focus your efforts because there is such a high density of not only boas but what the boas are eating. It's basically caves are like fast food restaurants for boas really. Well and then some because they can hang around there they're there the whole day yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get kicked out overnight. Yeah. <laughs> they just chill where the bats sleep and wait for more of them to come. Exactly and the other cool cool bit which is totally off off a little tangent, is they found that the boas, when they hit and took a bat, had an average handling time of around 12 minutes. Which, if you remember back to one of the Bowback papers, the 2012, I think. That was how long boa constrictors approximately were taking to so called handle a rat. Yes, as in with, its, with its heart rate or not. And it matches up superbly. So you've got a wild and laboratory experiment agreeing, which. Well, it's pure gold. It's wonderful. It's exactly what you want. <laughs> I do have a slight bugbear with the use of the term handling for a snake eating something, given that... They don't have hands. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there again, what would you call it instead? I, uh, I've got nothing. <laughs> Slithering time. Manipulation time. Manipulation time. It's horrible, though. It sounds a bit... It sounds like they're making the bats vote for someone they didn't want to. <laughs> yes, like, it's got some weird connotations that 
Yeah, maybe maybe handling time's there for a reason. I think handling time is just universally used. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll I'll let this one lie. Um, interesting though that these populations in caves were found to be a kind of melting pot of the genetic variety that was found all over the island because a similar thing was found by Reynolds et al. in 2011 when they did another study. That one was published in Herpetologica. Uh, They did a similar study on the Turks and Caicos boas, which are from other islands in the vicinity. and uh, Further south, right? Yes, I believe so, Yeah. yeah. And they found that the boa there, which is Chylobothrus chrysogaster, is actually not very genetically varied throughout its range either. So similar to the boa we're discussing, the Puerto Rican boa, the Turks and Caicos boa also, if you go and find them in any part of their range, they're pretty much genetically the same, as close to, as anywhere else in the range. Therefore, you don't need to worry about conserving separate populations as distinct lineages and losing boas, which might be adapted to a particular area. Conversely... Uh, in Jamaican boas, which is Chylobothrus subflavus, they were actually found to have two distinct lineages which need their own protection. Um, one was more vulnerable than the other. I think in Jamaica they're kind of split east and west. Um, and that was a paper by Zika et al. in 2008, um, published in Molecular Ecology. And they found that actually it's important to conserve both sides of the Jamaican boas range, which is interesting. And this is a whole dynamic of snake and other animal conservation that I hadn't really given much thought, to be honest. The idea that there's different populations which may not really be compatible in the places they live. And so you have to conserve areas independently of each other because, you know, a boa from a mountain region might not do so well if you put it down by the beach. Um, and I, I don't know, it really opened my eyes to conservation genetics as a concept i suppose yeah it gives you a more nuanced picture of these populations there's a lot more going on than just it's a species that lives on an island or at least in the jamaican case bonus bit of info you'd never guess what's actually threatening the jamaican species it begins with a c ew my first guess would be cat but it's you so i'm gonna say (laughs) it's probably the cane toad it's good old cane toad again it's that monster from south america yeah um they've been introduced there boas come along think it's a big fat tasty meal uh it is probably relatively fat and well it is a meal probably not tasty incredibly toxic and is killing the boas basically there's a there's a wilson et al 2010 paper cane toads a threat to west indian wildlife mortality of jamaican boas attributable to toad ingestion and biological invasions i mean it's pretty cut and dry toad arrives toad gets eaten things that eat toad die cane toads cane toads everywhere they're i mean it's a really testament to their flexibility and how damn good they are at well invading other places obviously a little bit of help from us but they make a good go of wherever they are it wouldn't surprise me that if one million years down the road, we've extincted ourselves and cane toads have just moved in, living mm. on the barren dystopian lava that we've left behind us. Oh no, oh no, they'd, they'd bring it up, they'd raise it up, they'd be <laughs> their own ecosystem engineers. <laughs> God. Cane toads are life brings. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, as I was saying, the Puerto Rican example with the Chylobothrus inornatus was that their population is 
genetically homogenous, if you like. It's the same all over, caves or not. So conserve a cave, you conserve the whole lot, yeah. unlike Jamaica. They're going to be less vulnerable to these, these threats, regardless of what they are. Yeah. Because you've got a bit of flexibility. There were a couple of uh, exceptions, I suppose is the right word to mention. One is one of the cave populations had slight inbreeding, uh, but they put that down to basically an artifact of the population decline that cave was seeing. And the other one was at Dorado Beach, where they noticed a slight divergence and genetic drift of that population. Basically, it looked like there was less gene flow in and out of that population compared to the others, and pointed the finger at this area of intense development separating that population from the others. So, so cut off by a town. Yeah, basically. It, it wasn't so dramatic to cause, cause a worry now, but it's definitely something to be aware of. And we know habitat fragmentation can have a big impact on the viability of, well, any population. That's something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, it's definitely. amazing that it's happened so quickly in in sort of human habitation. I mean, what's the town called? Dorado. Well, it's du- Dorado Beach is Dorado the population Beach. name. I'm not entirely sure if that's the. Uh... Do you know what a Dorado is? No, it, I have no idea. It's a it's a fish. It's a dolphin fish. It's like a big yellow color changing fish. It's really cool. Oh, yeah, went quite fi- a good thing to name after a beach. Uh, name a beach after. Yeah, yeah. I went fishing with my dad when I was a little kid, and he caught one. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, so that kind of nicely wraps up that paper. I would say. I, I think, think so. Think yeah. we've done well with our boas today. Oh, but we've well, got our boids, one more. Our boids. I our should boids. Say. Our boids and our boas. So we had the boas constricting and killing stuff. We had boas working as a team. Yeah, and we had our. Landscape genetics of boas, which actually wasn't as dry as I was worried it would be. No, there was, uh, you know, it's good little bits of examples of, of boas working not as a team in caves and stuff. And I think more than anything, yes, landscape genetics itself is quite dry, but the implications and the insight it provides is definitely not dry and actually very important. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones which is probably a slog to study, but your your results are really cool. It's worth it in the end. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that leads us neatly on to our species of the bye week. Species of the bye week, the segment with the underwhelming name. <laughs> Insert awesome jingle. <laughs> One day. And so, yes, the paper was Reynolds, Reynolds again, Puente Rolon, Geneva, Alviles, Rodriguez, and Herman, 2016, discovery of a remarkable new boa from the Conception Island Bank, Bahamas. Published in Brevoria, like I said, 2016, relatively recent paper, discovery of uh, a new boa, which is incredible. Oh, astounding, really. They're not small snakes. You would have thought that everybody's found them all by now. Yeah, exactly. Especially in somewhere like the Bahamas, which has been heavily, heavily studied. Um, there's yeah, loads especially of reason. compared to other tropical areas. This has got to be, well, it's gotta I mean, be up there. You've got right? to think about it. It's in close proximity to the United States. Yeah. And it's basically an island, a set of island paradises. If you've got a little bit of research money, catch you in a bit, I'm going to the Bahamas <laughs> to go and study snakes. <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> Seems like a no-brainer. Um, but yeah, Bahamas, a hotbed of exciting wildlife. They've got a really rich geological history. Uh, there used to be land bridges, various things going on isolated fauna where previously they were all connected and just incredible diversity overall given how well studied this area is 
you'd think that they would have discovered this species by now. But no, here we are, species of the bi-week. Yeah, I think they said it was the first boa species to be discovered in the area in 58 years. It's a long time. It is. I mean, it's either it's a very sneaky species, or the guys who originally went around and documented everything did a really thorough job. And, oh man, they didn't leave a snake unfound. <laughs> Except this one. Well, we think. We think. Next year. Oh, yeah, I found five just down, <laughs> just down the road. <laughs> another beach, another boa. <laughs> But um, the area this species was discovered is called Conception Bank, and it's a 16 kilometers squared raised area uh, with a main island called Conception Island, uh, a little cay, which is the tiny island, called Booby Cay, and uh, a few small satellite islands around it. Um, it's in the east of the Palmas. So this bank has quite interesting varied vegetation. Um, it supports palm-dominated scrub, mangrove, and dry forest. And of course, there are beaches because it's an island in the Bahamas. <laughs> you'd expect it to have beaches. Well, I think if you turned up and there weren't beaches, well, you'd be calling your travel agent. <laughs> yeah. <be> furious. <laughs> Thankfully, travel agents don't have access to this place. Don't they? No, they don't. It's extremely remote and it's also part of a um, wildlife sanctuary. The only oh, people. So it's, it's quite well protected and. Yeah, mostly. It's, uh, it's a nature reserve and it really is only visited by sort of like dive boats and the odd fishermen. Uh, so to describe this snake, yeah, the snout vent length is about a metre, not including the tail, because tails get lost, they're not an accurate representation of a snake's length. Uh, and this snake is pretty much silvery grey all over, it's quite plain, and that is what led to the scientific name, which is Chylobothrus argentum. So you don't think Inornatus would have been more appropriate for this species? Thankfully, it was already taken. <laughs> you know a little bit about the root of the word argentum, don't you? Well, argentum is basically silver in whatever Latin root. And it's got the added bonus. Not only is the snake very clearly silver and, you know, quite stunningly silver. The first one was found in 2015 in a silver-leafed palm tree. So you've got that double silver combo. <laughs> double whammy. That's really cool. That's uh, very neat. Yeah, they are silvery grey, like I said, big dark eye, uh, elliptical pupil. Um, there's a little bit of variation in the colour. Some of them have like more speckles. A lot of them have like individual coloured scales, mm. maybe some zigzag down the back. Some are slightly browner and some are slightly sort of bluer grey, but they're all... They look pretty, pretty similar and pretty unpatterned compared to your other species found around the Bahamas. Something I actually noticed... Um, is the second lot of photos in the paper are taken during the day and the first lot are taken during the night and the snakes look markedly different to me. Is that a switch, artificial light to natural light? It may well be, it may well be. Or they may um, have some kind of colour change from day to night, I don't know. It's too soon to say, I would imagine. But um, a lot of snakes seem to exhibit that, so maybe that's the case. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really cool. Um, unfortunately for these snakes... Uh, they've already there's already been suggestion that they're critically endangered. The yeah, uh, that's pretty inauspicious start, really, for a new species. Bam, you're on the world stage. Ah, oh, sorry guys, you're restricted. You got a low population. They're pretty vulnerable. Yeah, I mean they're it. restricted to 13 square kilometers. The IUCN haven't formally accounted for their um, vulnerability yet. 
But the authors of this paper went through some guidelines and they came out with the idea that, yes, critically endangered, so as endangered as you can get without being extinct, which is unfortunate. Well, no, I think extinct in the wild would be a step up from that. They're not technically extinct, but they're closer. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, there is that. There is, like, the... uh, They've got in zoos and stuff. Yeah, which... Really, unless you've got several thousand in zoos, eh, pretty much functionally extinct anyway. Yeah. But um, overall, I think they're a really, really cool species of snake, and it's exciting that a new boa has been discovered, especially one which is as beautiful as this is. Mm, it just adds another reason to head over to well, yeah. the Caribbean. And, uh, I would be... I mean, these guys you're not going to go see. <laughs> no, no. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, the only thing about it being so cool looking and coming from such a small place is that it really does make it vulnerable to poaching. And um, something that the authors say a couple of times throughout this paper is that they don't give specific habitat or locality information to protect the species from poachers. That, to me, is not necessarily true because they've said it comes from an island which is six. An island bank. The whole bank of islands is 16 kilometres squared. Yeah. It's not going to take long. They also said they didn't mention specific habitat information, and yet they discuss exactly what species of palm they're found in. They mentioned that one of them crawled onto one of the author's heads on a beach. Like, you're kind of giving a good impression of the exact habitat they live in, even indirectly. Um, so, I, you know, I don't think they've actually held back specific locality information very well. This is uh... <laughs> it's it's really difficult for them because they're talking about this very specific species that's found in this one place, and the problem is the place is so small that it's by its nature specific. There's really not much you yeah. can either see say, oh, there was a new snake in the Caribbean. People go, what? Yeah, well, you know that's just completely useless information, really. Or you can say what well, island it's from, and the island's so damn small that yeah, you, yeah, it's, it. Yeah, it's almost a catch-22. It is. The trouble with this is that there's a lot of people who keep and um, breed reptiles in captivity as a hobby. Like me, myself, I do it. Um, i got pet snakes. And um, this leads some people to strive to have like the rarest thing they can possibly get their hands on. People, people love weird and special morphs of snakes. So people are naturally going to gravitate towards the weird and special species. I mean... That's just normal. It's a little bit of a collector mentality, but it's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it is quite a current. There's a big call in the scientific community at the moment, which has been bolstered a lot by a recent publication in Science magazine, uh, which was just entitled Do Not Publish. which <laughs> Straight to the point. Yeah, blunt. <laughs> which actually was only published two weeks ago. Um, this was by Lyndon Meyer and Scheele, and they introduced this idea of the dual-use research dilemma, which is where... People could use the research for the benefit of conservation and furthering science, but they could also, on the flip side, use it to go and collect these animals in the wild and put them in the pet trade. Um, this a, paper spawned... gone. Sorry, I was just, that's a classic... You know, science since the beginning of time has been exploited by people. It, it's always going to be something you've got to consider. There's not going to be a scientific breakthrough or discovery which... Someone's not going to turn around and go, ah, make a couple of buck off that. Famous examples is um, in sort of like immunology and stuff like that. They don't necessarily publish breakthroughs in viral technology because bioterrorists could get hold of it. Yeah, or just anything that subverts. People just want to know, you know, scientists just want to know stuff. We want to try and 
help things usually. I feel certainly certainly the guys discovering this species are not in they're not in it for the fame and glory. No. They're in it for trying to help endangered yeah. species apart. Yeah, I mean yeah, regardless. Back to the uh Regardless it's being manipulated. Yeah, it's been manipulated. It's been manipulated. Yeah. Um but this paper that I mentioned by Lyndon Meyer and Scheel, entitled Do Not Publish in Science Magazine, spawned various articles, popular ones, in places like The Guardian, Live Science. And they kind of highlighted the fact that in the modern age, it's much easier for people to get hold of scientific data on rare species because of open source things, which, I mean, far be it from me to say open source is bad. I well, think exactly. it should all be open source. Yeah. Um, and also... You know, there's there's means around if you don't have the money to get a paper, you can get it anyway through pirating. Also, there's books that are published, which for a relatively low price, give you a lot of species-specific information and locality data. It basically gives you a shopping list yeah. if you want to think of it in that <laughs> way, don't you? Yeah, and if, you know, I mean, field guides are fantastic with range maps. Any field guide worth its salt has range maps if you're trying to work or out... Or at least a description of range. Something, yeah. to, something to give you some indication of, yeah, it could be that species I found here, sure. But these things can have a negative effect. And um, in this paper, they mention three problems which emerge when you give specific locality data on rare species. Uh, the first of which, as I've already mentioned, is the poaching, which... Uh, in a couple of cases has actually led to serious dents in populations. I think they talked about 20 newly described species of reptiles which have been targeted in this way. Um, one of which, which is famous at the moment, is the earless Bornean monitor. Because um, other monitors are incredibly famous for having large, prominent ears. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well this one's got none. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't got the external ear openings that you might expect. But um, this this Bornean monitor, Lanthanotus borneensis, um, heavily over exploited mm. and they basically discovered that um its range was much wider than previously thought or it, it had a different locality next thing you know everyone's going there they're turning up at reptile shows in europe the other famous example is one of the chinese cave geckos goniosaurus luai um which incredibly was completely extirpated there were none left in the type locality where it was described from so, i mean that's just heartbreaking <laughs> you guys, hey, we found this cool new lizard. Look, look, it's fantastic. It's found a new population. Bam, gone. Yeah, gone. Up. Great. And I'm thinking, could you, could you set up a sting operation? Could I mean, you, could you fake, fake a small, a small yeah. lizard? Well, okay, mate. Let's think. <laughs> We've got a hundred grand, which we can use for conservation. Sting. Sting. <laughs> do a sting. Do a sting. We could definitely do a sting. Whether or not they'd be the best use of resources. Just I think do a what's... little picture, shove it in, you know, some disreputable journal. Yeah. I mean, what's sad, though... That's been done in the past. People have done uh, sort of sting-type scientific studies to get disreputable journals. Why not take it a step further and get uh, get poachers with it? But, I mean, I mean, they caught on pretty fast, but... But then you've got the whole entrapment laws thing. I mean, the pra- the practicality of it is difficult to imagine. But anyway, <laughs> joking, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just thinking out loud. Joking aside, um, I've actually seen both those species advertised on the internet as well. Like, you know, it's not... The laws when you get them to Europe are slightly different where um, you can just say they're captive bred and people will believe you and then they're just in the trade and yeah. there's no... You know, it might be illegal to collect them in their area of origin, 
Um, and there are laws protecting the Pawnian monitor. And there, I mean, I'm getting this information from a Guardian article, so I don't know, you know, just heads up. But um, apparently there oh, is... Oh, I'm sure it's something we'll go into far more detail in yeah. later episodes. But apparently there is... Um, efforts underway to make all trade in the EOS Borneo monitor illegal. I mean, I don't know how I feel about that because you can't, I mean, look at prohibition, it just didn't work. And people who are, if you're unscrupulous enough to want a species which is likely to be impacted by you having it, you're not going to care whether it's legal or not. Well, in my, complete, in my complete outlawing might just jack the prices up and make it more profitable. Yeah. It, it really depends how it's done. I mean, obviously, loopholes need to be closed because you can't have populations being wiped out, but it's got to be done with a depth hand, I suppose. You know, it's it's, it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult, and you've got to know where those loopholes are to begin with, really. Mm. Where's that? Where's that lack of regulation in the whole supply chain from origin to sale on eBay for however much? Yeah. Well... So we've gone into poaching. That's one problem of publishing specific locality information about endangered or rare species. The second is um, actually landowner alienation. So if you discover a new species on someone's farm and then you publish it and loads of people go there to try and take photos of that animal and trespass on the land, you've then ruined a relationship with someone who has got some important scientific stuff on their land. Well, they're a legitimate stakeholder in their land. They're using that to live. You can't... I mean, I don't want to use the word exploit, because that's you know implies intent on the part of the researchers, researchers that there obviously isn't. But there's got to be some mutual benefit, and then certainly some mutual understanding between the two. Yeah, you don't want to wreck that. And the other one, which is closely linked to that, the third um, downside to publishing this information, is that the habitats can often be destroyed or badly disturbed by those same people that come to look at the stuff a lot of people like taking pictures of snakes people have a tendency to pose snakes for a long time it's a whole thing yeah i mean we won't get into that now but i mean there's plenty of examples of is it ecotourism would that be classified as ecotourism or do you just throw that into wildlife tourism uh i don't know because it's it's like going on a safari isn't it so yeah well we'll call it wildlife tourism Think of Komodo Island and the whole situation the dragons were in before that all got cleaned up. That's not great. It really wasn't great. But now it's, you know, they've, they've switched up how the park runs and there's different areas for different uses and there's still a core protected, you know, keep the dragons safe area. It, it can be done in a safe and mutually beneficial way, but someone has to do it. And also be working closely with landowners who still own a stake in yeah. that part of the world. Got to try and account for everybody without damaging things, which is tough. It's not easily done. And um, yeah, I mean, that it, it, it's a very complicated issue. Um, that's not to say... I've, I've obviously mentioned a few cons of publishing this specific locality information. There are some pros. As we said previously, it's beneficial to science to have as much information as possible, and you want to be as mm. open as you can. I personally, and I'm, I'm imagining you feel the same, I hate the idea of not disclosing information to people because it's just it, it just seems well, fundamentally I'm fundamentally opposed to it. That's not what science is about. No, science, science should be transparent, reproducible, and everything should be on the table. So someone else can come along, see your stuff, go, oh, that makes sense. Regardless of what you've written about it, the core data should be there to infer whatever they want or 
Yeah. You know, be a part of a bigger, bigger project. There should never be like an us and them, like we are entitled to the information and you are not. It should yes. be available to everyone. Um, well, that's the other not solution. You were mentioning open access being a potential avenue for people getting hold of this information. Maybe not good. Sticking it behind paywalls and trying to restrict that access is, you know, no one's going to be for that, really. No. That's, that's so elitist and exclusionary. Like, that's horrible. You want to encourage people to read science and encourage people. I mean, what are we doing here? We're trying... Yeah, and <laughs> it's the antithesis of this. It's yeah, trying to spread information and. And on the subject of that, you said you want to make it available to people. Citizen science is incredibly, incredibly powerful force in conservation. Oh, I'm getting better all the time. And so if you take away people's ability to help by hiding from them where things are, you're really damaging your chances of integrating your conservation with people who are local to those animals. Well, it's not... Yeah, I mean, how respectful is that? No, you're not allowed this information because it's going to be abused. Especially when... Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, especially when you consider that most of these researchers are coming from, like, American or European institutions and they're researching animals in... Well, maybe not most, but it's often the case. It just doesn't seem fair that you can't involve people in the conservation of their own species directly. Yeah, well, you have to. If you want a successful conservation effort... It's got to it's got to integrate people because otherwise you're just saying no you can't do it. that's not a long term solution people will just resent you yeah it's got to be all inclusive everybody has to live together along with the species it's... yeah so you, I I would imagine the best thing I mean it's it's difficult it is incredibly difficult because both sides you've got downsides both sides you've got massive positives mm. there's not really a correct answer here no I suppose the best one is just Make sure there isn't a market for it, or at least if there is a market, it is very well regulated. But also at the other end, make sure that the collection and distribution is incredibly well regulated mm. and continuously monitored. That's the other thing. You've got to keep up with how the population's doing over time. Because I'm sure there is there are definitely ways to sustainably harvest. It might even trade. be. It might it's even been be. It's been done with other species. Yeah. We know this. It's, it's, it has. It, it is might possible. even be on the role of. It might even fall to the researchers to organise if they're going to release photos of a new species which looks really cool. It might even be one of their obligations to capture a few and set up captive breeding and have them Ooh, available. Gosh, that. Like I love that in principle, but wow, you've just found a species. I mean, researchers. That seems like a lot of time. That requires. Good chunks of money. Well, I mean, I would imagine that... Contacts with captive, you know, you know, breeders that are competent enough to get these animals to actually breed. What's the fantastic dragon-looking snake, which is notoriously difficult to breed because it only takes live frogs oh, or something like that? Javanicus, I think it is. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I mean, that is such an undertaking, and people still can't get that to breed, like, consistently, right? Certainly not to the point of supplying a market no, absolutely not however i actually think that that could integrate nicely into having a stud book and having like you know a list of hobbyists who are of a set standard and then you could like have an arranged thing where they would get shipped certain types of species it'd be their responsibility to proliferate them and actually it could it could in the long run benefit having a reasonable base if you kept serious records where you can actually reintroduce species because a lot of hobbyist breeders will tell you oh we need to have this species in captivity so that we can release it back later no mate if you don't have 
if you don't have a stud book, if you haven't, you know, if you haven't properly looked after, if you don't have progeny and like specific locality information on where this parents were collected, every single thing that's ever gone into it, it's completely worthless for conservation. Well, it's not worth the risk, is it? No, it really isn't. Um, I mean, we just talked about inbreeding and outbreeding the repression. Guess which box you're opening again with frogs as well. I mean, they've got to be kept in. Them in isolation, away from all germs. It, it's, they have to oh, be well, you've quarantined got the additional the fungus time. aspect. Yeah, it's just the whole thing. Pest spread. But um, I, I mean, I like the idea of what you're saying. Yeah. With a, a more formalised captive breeding system, I don't think the impetus should fall on researchers finding that species. But there definitely needs to be something in place. I mean, if we're going to say you got to point your finger at some international organisation that could do that, good luck. Yeah, well, that is a massive logistical undertaking. But then again, you look at things like golden mantella frogs, paint and zoo work with those, and you know, it is vital work. It's doable. It's just coordinating so many different people because that's that's one zoo there, and other zoos. Zoos are in a quite a. I mean, how long have zoos been around? And the infrastructure surrounding zoos and zoo collections. You can't say that's not a lot of work to maintain that network. Yeah, true. I think it's something that we're going to have to move towards just by the sheer quantity of threatened species. Well, especially if they're being poached anyway. <laughs> you might as well at least get... If you have to have a captive population, at least make sure it's a dual purpose back the other way. Yeah. Some journals already have exemptions where you are not obligated to publish locality data for endangered species. PLOS One is an example, which we talk about a lot on this show because it's open access. How does, uh, how does that apply for data deficient or non, non-status? Good question. I, I don't actually know, but I would, I would hope and I would imagine that they've got some kind of clause for that. Like, if you think your species is likely to be classified as near threatened or endangered then we'll, we all we'll let happily you oblige <laughs> you not telling everyone where they are yeah it seems like common sense but you know who knows but um one of the reasons that this kind of all came to the fore is that um yang and chan in 2015 they published a paper entitled two new species of the genus Gynosaurus from southern china in uh, zootaxa which is the same species that was completely extirpated and it's yeah. not sorry not the same species same genus as the species that was completely extirpated um, and they just said straight up, no, we're not telling you where they are. Um, obviously, if you were studying Gonosaurus in China, you could ask, and I'm sure they'd be forthcoming. And then you post the wrong information and have the police waiting and wait. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All we need is a cop car and loads of burgers, and we can do a sting. <laughs> Sweet. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I've gone off on quite a long, uh, yeah, really passionate good. tangent about that. I mean, we were talking about a boa and we ended up talking about Chinese lizards. But I think it was all pertinent and uh, relevant discussion and something that needs to be said. Yeah. I know it's going to come up again, not just in Species of the Bi Week. I'm sure we'll we'll dig into some more general reports or something about poaching or, or, or wild collection. Because it's an important issue. People, it is. People and I, I need don't... to be aware of it, even if it doesn't directly apply to them. I yeah. Think. I, I do want to be careful and not make out like this is the single biggest threat to reptiles and amphibians globally. Oh, no. It's a very, very minor threat. At least collection for the pet well, trade is. For some species. For, yeah, for some species. You tell that to the one that's just disappeared. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as compared to like climate change or cotridiomycosis or habitat loss, it's... 
you know, it's it's not a major, major player, but like you say, there are instances where it could be pretty damn negative. And it's worth discussing because it feels like it's one that can be solved with just the right amount of organisation, maybe yeah. is the right word. Yeah, and I think the majority of people who are buying reptiles and amphibians have an interest in their conservation. Oh yeah, well they're, they're enthusiasts, aren't they? They they like the reptiles, they're interested in the reptiles, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't own them. It's the reason I'm doing this show, right? So, right. yeah. I mean, we're sitting here surrounded by, what, four four different types of snake. Not out of, yeah, I want to collect that snake because it's really cool. That's a little bit of it, but yeah. it's mostly because they're fascinating, wonderful creatures that are just brilliant to be around. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I'm glad we raised that point. And like you say, I'm sure it'll come up again later. Yeah. We'll have to get into it. But I think that pretty much well rounds up our uh, episode, don't you think? I think so. I think we've talked quite nicely about how boas crush the living life out of small mammals. <laughs> the living life gone, extinguished. We've talked about how they've done it on the tops of caves to little bats. Uh, we've talked about how those caves can provide little units of conservation for threatened yeah. wests. We've learned an awful lot about Chylobothrus as a genus. Yes, it has been quite focused on those island species. I'm sure... We we mentioned boa constrictor at one point, yeah. and I'm sure we'll be back for another another boa related episode later on. There's so much to talk about with these guys. Yeah, they're fascinating. And after all, we've just stayed in one family here. We've just talked about boids. I mean, there's a whole whole other groups. Oh, if you are listening and you're thinking, you know, you've got a particular favourite um, group. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be snakes. It could be a particular genus of salamanders, if you think they're worth us discussing. Yeah. Or oh, really weird Sicilian. Yeah, well, Sicilians are going to come up. Sicilians are pretty, yeah. pretty hot right now. And the, and the thought of a non-weird Sicilian? No. I saw a Sicilian in Thailand, and it... It was weird, wasn't it? It blew my mind. <laughs> bizarre. I didn't know they had those little pokey-out things that come out the sides of their face. They have, like, little sensory appendage that comes out. They're just a mystery to science as far as I'm concerned. I thought concerned. it was ill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any comments, questions, queries, get in touch with us. We're at uh, herphighlights at gmail.com and we'll, I'm sure any corrections we'll bring up in future episodes yeah, or we'll post up on herphighlights.podbean.com which is where I think we'll shove all our news and comments and anything we, we're dealing with. Yeah, if we misspoke or misunderstood anything, just let us know and we'll correct it. Yeah, we'll do our best. We'll, I do want to keep on top of corrections because we are trying to make this podcast about reputable sources <laughs> and referenced uh, babble. Yeah. Cool. So, um, yeah, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.